0: If you care to stand with me this morning for the reading of scripture, 1 John 4, verses 16 to 21. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have not seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God. Thanks be God. I'm grateful for this opportunity this morning to share. I hope that it will be more a conversation than a sermon. Um, I'm honest, I'm a bit nervous this morning, I used to be regular in the pulpit and it's been a number of years right now, so I perhaps ask for a bit of grace. In Africa, I remember going to a um, church meeting on a weekend and I was with a pastor and we were late for the meeting, as often happened, and he could see and sense my anxiety and he um, took a moment to teach me a lesson, he was an older pastor. And he said, wafunzi, which in chivenda means pastor, he said, you see this thing on my hand? And I said, yes, it's a watch. He said, we only wear these things for decoration. (laughs) (laughs) So he was trying to tell me that, you know, relationship in African culture is more important than being timely to a meeting or being proper in terms of procedure. That just being there and being a part is of utmost importance. In 2008, um, Dr. Bellinger asked me to come for the first of three times to teach world religions and topics in Islam at the Baylor University, and I have to say I was quite nervous to come and speak world religions for someone of myself who had sort of, um, my faith had journeyed significantly since my upbringing, and I had just finished a book by an author by the name of Charles Kimball, When Religions Become Evil, and in it, I resonated so much with him because we had similarities. He was Southern Baptist. He grew up, his formative upbringing was Southern Baptist. And I wrote him and I said, Dr. Kimball, I'm just about to go and teach world religions to a group of upper class students at Bader University. Many probably are very comfortable in their communities of faith and socioeconomic situation. Do you have any pointers and lessons for me? And he wrote back and he said, Scott, I don't. He said, I just came out of Texas and I lit a fire behind my tail. <laughs> well, that didn't do much to make me feel very uh, comfortable. Um, and so as I think about similarities, I think about some of the similarities that he and I shared. One uh, is this idea of inherent sinfulness. And as I was sitting there, you know, having grown up in that culture, evangelical conservative. Um, It dawned on me as we were singing the songs that one thing that I resonate and appreciate so much about Lakeshore is that you are such a thoughtful, caring community. And I didn't think of inherently sinful. I liked the term that I read recently in a book entitled The Confessions of a Funeral Director, a lovely, beautiful book if you haven't read it. But in it, he says, as he grappled with coming to put faith in a proper perspective, he said, I like to think of inherently sinful in the context of inherently mortal. So an inherent mortality instead of an inherent sinfulness. The other idea that uh, Charles Kimball and I shared was reminiscence of a a biblical fidelity, the idea of scripture as being um, all sorts of things. Uh, Timothy Bill, in a book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, talks about the iconic cultural view of the Bible as we understand it culturally in America particularly. He says, first of all, it's authoritative. It's the ultimate authority. It's univocal. It's one voice. There is no no alternative or unclarity of voices. It's, It's no contradictions. It's a practical book. It's a divine... Um, reference manual, a how-to book that you consult when you're having to make a difficult decision, almost like the black eight ball. Remember, if those of you who remember that, you shake it to find the answer you want to life's problems. Um, it's accessible to any and everybody, whoever, respective of your education level, you are able to come to the Bible and to somehow understand it in all its fullness. It's comprehensive. It has... Um, touches on every imaginable topic and conversation, past, present, and future. And then the other part of the iconic cultural view is that it's exclusive. There is no competing interpretation. It is the only final uh, response to society and its problems. And so I began to realize that what I wanted to do this morning was not to share a sermon, but to share if I can, a journey of my life and my faith, and it has been my family's as well, fortunately, um, having grown up Southern Baptist with this particular view of sin, of the Bible particularly. And um, so I came from a position where, you know, you have the sense of certitude and absolutes that um, instead of living in life's questions, you know the answers. and you ha- It's full of cliches like once saved, always saved. And then transitioning, I guess, it came to the point where, um, fortunately, in my, particularly in postgraduate studies, um, realizing that, um, you know, finding and experience God is not found solely or perhaps primarily in scripture. That's why Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of this day in John 5 and said, you know, you, th- you look in scriptures because there you find, you think you'll find me and find God, but I tell you to love your brothers and sisters. And so I came to realize through particularly the mentorship of individuals and through a vulnerability of life, that God is experienced and known primarily in relationship with others and others different. And if you want to experience relationships that are meaningful and deep and experience God in those relationships, you have to risk vulnerability. Now, I could probably just simply ask the question, who in modern day is the the prophet of vulnerability, Brene Brown, right? And she describes or gives a definition of vulnerability as the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. And I think that's good, although that doesn't articulate perhaps the discomfiture that we feel emotionally when we are vulnerable. And I think there are different levels of vulnerability. There's the vulnerability that is a choice and one you uh, initiate on your own. For instance, my colleague, Professor Philippe Denis, who is a Dominican um, professor of Christian history at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, he asked me to read his journal that he had written where he embarked on a a journey of faith and discovery by going from Cape Town all the way up to North Africa by by train, public train. He had no reservations ahead of time, he just got on the train and he went and it was a fascinating story uh, of travel that was vulnerable and unexpected, all the unknowns, almost a wilderness journey. And then there's the vulnerability that changed my life, that which was by requirement and by duty. So, during my studies at Baylor University, I had um, the privilege to be a part of an ethnographic study of a Jain community in Richardson, Texas. So if any of you are familiar with Jainism, um, they particularly are the ones who sort of um, were instrumental in Gandhi's nonviolent response to injustices. And so as a part of that study in Richardson, Texas, I remember Thanksgiving was coming around as we're doing now. And I remember on that particular Sunday, um, the youth were all excited and they were beginning to have an all-night prayer vigil to be commiserate with the millions and millions of turkey deaths that would ensue soon in the holiday season. And I would remember, as I shared that with my students at Baylor, there was always, and normal, you know, chuckles, but then I thought, you know, how um, wonderful it is to think of an individual and a group of individuals who so revere life that they would identify with that which is not life for many birds. (laughs) And then finally, I guess you could say, um, there's the vulnerability that comes that's not really our choice, whether we succumb to a sickness or we said something or did something and someone comes back and makes us feel very small because we said something inappropriate. Vulnerability, Henry Nguyen said, living with others in a shared confession of weakness or brokenness. And I think that's a part of vulnerability as well. And so part of sharing with you as a church family, I want to share that for the last 10 years has been an extremely difficult, vulnerable part for myself and my family. Um, we came back because my wife's mother was um, chronically ill. Uh, we went to Austin because my wife was accepted to UT Austin's Master of Nursing programs, which one of your own, Kay Eban, was the one who is instrumental in directing her to that program of study. But then to be in Austin, um, things didn't go as we planned. I thought I would come back and find a job um, teaching. I did teach at Baylor for one year, but then realized that the commute was too difficult for the family. Um, And then as I was beginning to think about reengaging professionally in a different way, um, our middle daughter had two various issues that I share with you, not in secret, because she publicizes it on Facebook. But she was a victim of sexual assault by her work supervisor when she was 15 and um, by someone who was 29 years old. And then she had a chronic malform, venous malformation of her left calf that required, um, she's had more than 25 procedures. She's done a trial chemotherapy. And as of today, she's scheduled for amputation of her left leg on December 3rd. We have our fourth born who is coming back from a summer camp and was just excited to be getting on the bus and coming home and she was carrying like a duffel or something bag and she kind of hopped over a little pool of water and so doing her vertebra slipped and she was then eventually experiencing chronic pain and was diagnosed with spondylolisthesis, sorry, I don't say that correctly. And so the chronic pain for her eventually necessitated a back brace, a leg brace and um, She had to do her first two years of high school on homebound studies. Um, Vulnerability for me was learning to have a change of identity, going from sort of a macho, athletic, you know, out there in the workplace type individual, very happy with my colleagues at the university, to suddenly finding myself at home while my wife was doing her full three-year master's program and then by transition working, and um, finding that there are more and many ways to... Fold lingerie when you've done the laundry. (laughs) Not being too proud to buy feminine products at Costco and walk out in the aisle. Um, Waking up in the morning and asking yourself, what do I take out of the freezer for dinner? So these are the kind of mental switches that went on in my mind. Um, And Charlene was so wonderful. You have such a wonderful minister. And Charlene, I remember asking her in many of the applications I made for... um, Trying to find a new teaching position or work assignment, to write me a um, letter of reference, and she writes beautifully. And in fact, I go to that letter often when I'm feeling a little bit down and want a little pep up. <laughs> Unfortunately, it hasn't been very effective. I haven't found work. <laughs> so vulnerability, I think, is something that we fight against, particularly as North Americans. You know, we're the we're the wilderness fighter. We're the 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 Minuteman, man, the person who goes out and tames frontiers. Um, and I think when groups go overseas, particularly to Africa, I think they come back with almost, it's really not for Africa, right? Or for Africans, it's for us, it's for our society because I think we really are a fractured society. And um, I remember an African theologian was asked once his impression of Africa as, as uncivilized, as the place of darkness, as primitiveness. And he, and he was asked if he agreed, and he thought for a moment, and he said, well, if you mean primitive as in purity, then yes. Because there is a purity about Africa. There is a simplicity, without it being simple or, or, or in a negative sense, but a simplicity of life that is relational, where, where life is vulnerable. Life is a struggle for survival, and yet it's a commonality that binds, a commonality that engenders deep and meaningful engagement and relationship with people. The thing, I guess, that allowed me, or one of the many formative things that allowed me to sort of grow from my conservative evangelicalism where the the scripture was more of a safeguard or a substitute for a vital life of faith was proximity to people who were different. Now, in the past, some of you could probably remember when you look at a world map, it was sort of color-coded, right? So you'd have this color-coded for for Muslim-dominant countries or Hindu or Christianity and whatever. And now, as Diana Eck, Harvard professor, has made very public and and known that the world is more like a kaleidoscope. When we look through it, we see this multicolored cultural religious blend. And as Thomas Tangaraj, a former professor at Emory University, says, you know, in the past it was okay to sort of talk about the other or to go and to save and to minister and to preach to the other because the other was always away and over there and not present here. But the more that now the other is a part of our community, our neighbor, our workplace person, all of those antagonisms and those, you know, John 14, 6 that we might have used as sort of a proof text to go out and just say, you know, we have the truth and you need it, they begin to fall apart because we realize that in the other we find God also. Because God is the creator of all creation. And in fact, we often find more God in the other than we do within ourselves. And so then proximity was one thing. Then the narrative was another, hearing the stories of individuals who were different. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He has a book, many books, but one is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And it was really practical to me as I read his book because he uses the illustration of the rider and the elephant. And so we, as a Western world educated, you know, we think we know it all. He says, you know, we have this idea that the mind, the rational, can... Can overcome anything. So if I want to go on a diet or I want to overcome my anger or whatever we have all these five step books and these ways of ordering the mind to do it. But he says we have it wrong. He says actually the rider on the elephant is the mind and he or she controls the reins but it's really just directional because the elephant, the emotion, the intuitiveness is the elephant. It's far stronger and more persuasive than the rider on top. And so, why I share that is that in, during my postgraduate studies, um, I was fortunate to have a mentor by the name of John Johnson or Jon Jonsson. He was Swedish Lutheran. Um, and so many things of his life I keep coming back to, um, and the tremendous effect that he had on my life in terms of opening my heart and mind to being vulnerable and in finding God in the other. I remember him sharing when he would talk about the Bible and religion, he would say religion isn't that magic eight ball. It's not supposed to be this reference manual for us to go to. Religion is only meaningful to the extent that we provide reasonable responses to the struggles of our life. And he used to say we have three inexplicables in life, the miracle of birth, the problem of suffering, and the enigma of death. And he said, for me, this is what the Bible is. It's it's communities of individuals and people giving expression and trying to find reasonable responses to the vulnerabilities that we experience every day, but not isolated, individualized as we do so often, but in community. John used to say that if there is sort of this and I hope I don't sound heretical to many of you, but if there is this thing of Jesus returning from the heavens to earth, that he doesn't have this sense of it being in a cloud of glory with fire, flame, chariot, but it's God revealing himself where he has always been, with and among suffering humanity. I was walking across the the Gross, as he used to say, toward Moody Library one day, and he was a tall giant of a man. And I would always, even at his age of early 80s, struggling to keep up. And I said, John, what, only back then it was Dr. Johnson. I would have never called him John. I said, what is your philosophy of life? He said, oh, Scott, that's easy. Walk on the grass, but don't make paths. Walk on the grass, but don't make paths. And I thought, you know, I didn't say you're crazy, but I thought it. (laughs) And the more I thought about it, I realized that (laughs) what he was saying is, don't be afraid to risk walking off the path. Because in the path, it's comfortable. It's known, you know where you're going, but it's the path everyone's following. Get off the path. Experience life, experience relationships, experience differentness. And allow that differentness to challenge and shape and change your life. John was an eccentric person who there was no stranger. Um, whether it's at HEB at the checkout line, um, whether it was at the Chinese restaurant, whether it was in class. I remember one day at the end of semester, um, he students were presenting a... Um, end-of-year pro- uh, projects, and I was standing over as his TA in the corner, and I saw kids at the back beginning to smirk and smile and laugh, and I wondered what was they doing, and what were they looking at, and I looked over, and John was sitting there with his legs sort of relaxed position, his zipper was down, <laughs> and I thought, oh dear, how do I go and politely tell him? So in the break, I stood up, and he was writing something on the board, and I went up and put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, Dr. Johnson. Your fly is down. And I thought that would be it. But oh no, after, after the halftime, he turned around and he said, Klaus, my TA has just told me that my zipper is down. And then he went on to tell and have everybody laughing and it was just this connection moment. <laughs> but that was John. You know, he, he had no, he, he was transparent. He was a person you could relate with. Vulnerability, I remember Peter Koza, a Mozambique refugee who uh, worked with in the northern part of South Africa, and um, Peter was someone who taught me about candor. Um, sometimes you might think it was a little bit rough because one evening he and his wife and a, do- a teacher friend came to our house, and I had just made a South African poikukos, which is a cast iron pot that you layer with all sorts of meats and vegetables and a cup of wine and it tasted, and I was really proud of this poikikos. And so I invited he and his wife and friend in, and they came, and they sat, and they were eating, and they ate in silence. And then it was time for them to leave, and we walked them to their baki, which is a pickup truck, and, and we said our goodbyes, and Peter drove off, and the dust was behind him, and then suddenly the brake lights came on. It was dark. He did a U-turn. He came back around. And he rolled down his window and he said, friend, when you come to my house, I'll teach you how to cook. <laughs> but Peter was also the kind that when I went to see him, and he eventually died of brain cancer a number of years later, but he was one I remember on this visit where he said, let's go walk in the neighborhood, and Malamulele, where he lived, was predominantly, I don't know of any other Europeans, whites that were there, it was all black community sort of established during the years of apartheid, and he lived in a very um, rural part of the city, um, all dirt roads, and so we started walking in the neighborhood, and I remember as we walked, he took my hand, and here we were walking hand in hand, two men, and those of you who are part of African culture know that's very common, but it's a sign of of affection, endearment, and for me it was very uncomfortable but at the same time it was such a lesson in vulnerability and connection. So this morning I guess the other part of my sermon is for another sermon because time is waning. But I was going to take us to look at why scripture became so paramount in our lives, why it became a safeguard why it became a substitute for a vital life of faith. And in fact, my dissertation of American and English missionary perceptions of the heathen Zulu in sort of the era of the 1900s or 1800s, sorry, 19th century, was then the Sabbath was the stalwart. They would go and they would determine whether you had become civilized and Christianized to the extent that the heathens observed solemnly and piously the sabbath. Everything was geared toward that and I think now we as a society have flipped and we see that the bible has become that substitute. And I think oftentimes I think Carl Degler, he's a two-time historian Pulitzer prize winner. And he wrote of the reformation that the reformation ushered in two things for humanity. First of all, a great freedom but also a terrifying responsibility. For the first time, we became this priesthood of believers. We became the adjudicators of truth and error. We became the self-initiators of a personal relationship with what was perceived as a capricious, if not punitive, Calvinistic God. And it came about at a time of the Industrial Revolution as well and all of those revolutions that established sectarianism and all of this immense uh, discontinuity or um, what's the word I'm looking for, disruptiveness. And the fear that was within the unsettledness of society, people were grasping for mechanisms of control, something that would give their life, their inner turmoil, a sense of... Correctedness and rightness and security. And so we see in the ensuing years and decades the church and individuals going to iconoclasm, um, stringent morality in the Puritans, professions of faith, to saving steps to the Roman road, all in an effort, I think, to give some sense of peace to a troubling conscience where we now had the responsibility to secure our own eternal destiny. How many of you have seen the image of, and it's probably across in different cultures, but African women carrying their baby on their back with a, a blanket wrapped around them? My wife used to do that with our children. Wonderful, wonderful way to put them to sleep. And I've often thought that that image is an image both of 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 what we have seen salvation. We have seen almost ourselves as a child who somehow has to sort of grasp securely onto God the Father lest we fall out, off. But a different corrected view of God might be that God is the one who places his arms, his, or her arms, around us and embraces us as the child that's cocooned on the back of the mother. So I leave you this morning with something that... Um, gives expression to finding God in others. Um, I believe that all of us are made in the image of God and we can pr- debate that for a very long time as to what it means, but there is something where we are closer to God than we give ourselves credit for. My wife wrote of this uh, back in probably about um, 1997 and. Her name was Prisca Matibula. Prisca Matibula died suddenly last week. Louisa and I attended her funeral today. They say she died of pulmonary embolism. Although I didn't really intend to stand up and say anything during the funeral, the thought went through my mind that if I were to say anything, it would have to include the statement she said to me on the one occasion that we met. Namely, that she liked my teeth. She had been at a youth support group I had shared in. When it was over, she told me about her children in Zambia and that she had appreciated what I said in regard to parenting and that she liked my teeth. I sort of chuckled when she said it, but never understood the why. While it had stuck in my mind, I didn't ask anyone else why she might have said that and just tucked the fact away in my mind. During the eulogy today, the statement was made that she had been a dental assistant while she was still living in Zambia. But it still didn't dawn on me. Then when I came home and Elizabeth was reading the write-up about Prisca's life, she suddenly said, that's why she liked your your teeth. She was a dental assistant. It finally made sense. She went from being a dental assistant in Zambia to working with sex workers in South Africa. She had left her children behind to be able to provide better for them and to work with people living with AIDS. She had been recruited by CARE, which meant community AIDS response, because they needed people who could speak other African languages. She had begun a support group at the Helen Joseph Hospital and had a special initiative to educate sex workers about AIDS. All through the funeral, people spoke about her deep and vibrant faith. It struck me how meaningful it was that she was a person who wanted to follow Jesus with her life and wasn't loath to work with sex workers. But now she is gone and her children are left without a mom. I was told that the day after she died, she was scheduled to return to Zambia to bring her children here to live with her. Richard Rohr, in his book Near Occasions of Grace, says, Apart from human relationship, God remains word instead of word become flesh. God has argued about instead of loved, proven instead of shared, religion instead of life. Until and unless Christ is someone happening between people, the gospel remains largely an abstraction.